Hello, and welcome to the Keys Coach podcast. This is the podcast where we interview piano, keys, and synth players and talk about their life in music. Today's guest is a really special one for me. We are talking to the amazing Phil Peskett. Phil was one of the first piano teachers I had when I really got serious about the piano. He taught me so much, so it was great to sit down with him and talk about his journey. Phil has played with so many different people and he is equally at home playing jazz as well as working in popular music with bands and artists like Maloko, Nick Kershaw, the Cinematic Orchestra and he is also in the house band for Soul Family Sundays of Ronnie Scott's with the awesome Natalie Williams. If you haven't checked out that night, you absolutely have to. The link is in the description. This was a really interesting conversation where we spoke about how Phil initially started learning the piano, his journey through music college and how he got those first few gigs. We talk about his love for teaching, his love for synths, and we also chat about how he is a world-ranking memory athlete. I didn't even know that was a thing, but it was so interesting to hear all about it. Phil has got such a great sense of humour and he is so humble, but I can honestly tell you he is one of the best piano players on the scene today. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with the amazing Phil Peskett. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on, uh, Phil, today. It's absolutely great to see you. I was thinking, actually, the last time I think I saw you might have been pre-COVID. We were doing that uh, session at Metropolis. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. Was it for Lidl or Aldi or...? It was something like that, yeah, the glamour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And it was it was kind of out to play about seven notes on the piano mainly. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, sort of st- standard kind of thing. It was good though. Um, yeah, Are you, do, you, do you do a lot of that kind of stuff? I, I have done more recently, yeah. I did uh, I, I did like quite a few in COVID, um, right. weirdly sitting from this exact chair that I'm sat on now. Okay. Um, it's kind of weird. And then I, I've done more where it's... Uh, where it's more you're bringing together like a pool of different musicians and getting them to to do a track and there's there's always these little cut downs you have to do as well which is quite which is quite fun so it's right. like finding little 10 second versions you know yeah and is that um, is that through a, a kind of an agency or a like how, how do you get that work yeah there's a couple of there's a couple of agencies i've worked for there's like one in particular i've done quite a lot for um but i think kind of it's the kind of thing where it's, it's a bit like the gigging kind of scene you just your name sort of just gets passed around various people's phone books and things yeah. and you get a call saying, oh my God, we've got this thing next week. Can you can you be in this studio at this time, you know? Right. Yeah, it's weird how, yeah, weird how kind of music seems to work in, in kind of, there are different circles. Yeah. That don't, they don't often kind of cross each other and you, you tend to stick in your own circle. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I guess my first question, whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in the Midlands near near Birmingham, a little town called Rugeley. If you um, if you take the M6 toll road, Rugeley is one of the one of the turnings off the M6 toll. Ah. Um, so yeah, it's a little market town. Cool. And is, is, was there like a lot of music going on there? Uh, well, it, as a town, I guess there wasn't a great deal going on. But my household happened to be quite musical. My mum um, ran and still runs to this day a a dance school. Um, and, and my dad played a bit of piano, um, and so yeah, there was a piano in the house, and um, there was always loads of loads of music happening and loads of performances going on, you know. Um, and we all like so I'm one of four kids, and we all we all went through the dance school. We all had dance lessons, and yeah, so the so the kind of the whole thing of there being music and there being 
you know, shows happening, that, that was just kind of, some, you know, seemed completely natural to me. And I also think that there's something really um, important about, you know, because learning, learning to dance, just that thing of like, you listen to the music and when this happens in the music, you do this with your body. That's just like, like a big version of, of, of playing the piano, you know, that's mm. just kind of just like playing in a band. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so I think that, you know, looking back, that was a, that was a really great starter in life as a musician. What kind of, what kind of dance were you doing? Um, I did, I did tap, which was my speciality. And I did something called modern, which is kind of, you know, a bit like disco dancing or something. Oh, nice. Um, but I never did ballet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know why that was, and I don't know who, I, I guess I probably, probably decided at an early age that ballet is not for me. But what I find interesting is, is, so, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of different styles of music because there are lots, you know, there are different styles of dance. But to my mum, classical music equals ballet music. And, and which is something that I kind of, I realized that I, that's exactly the way I thought. Right. Until, until, until I was an adult, basically. I remember my, I remember kind of listening to a bit of classical music that I'd heard my mum, you know, use for the dance school. I was listening to, to, to it because it was cool. And, and then my mum came in and said, Philip, why are you listening to ballet music? <laughs> uh, which, is, yeah, which is, it's kind of, it only, it only seems strange now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, growing up, that's, that's, that's the way it was. Ballet music is, is classical stuff. And there was also kind of, there would have been like the, you know, modern, modern pop music of, I mean, this is kind of mainly the, the eighties. And some kind of jazzy stuff, but not not proper jazz, just kind of the lighter side of jazz. I remember there being kind of big band music that, that you know, that's probably good music for, for tap dancing, you know. Absolutely. So yeah. who, who taught you the piano? Did your dad teach you piano initially? He must have taught me some things. My dad, my dad kind of, his, his version of playing the piano is, you know, those buskers books, like 101 yeah it's for buskers it's all it's all those so it's all kind of you know again great a great grounding for jazz because it's kind of top line and chord symbols absolutely and and he kind of he he might well have been the one who showed me you know these are the notes you put in a c major seven chord um but then for my dad that's kind of as far as it goes he, he would kind of pick out the the melody with the right hand plonk down a root position c major seven chord underneath it Right. Probably far too low for the piano, and then and that and that would be the extent of it. So, yeah. But that was you know still a good, it's a good starter. And we had and we all kind of all of us all four of us had piano lessons from a really young age, kind of four or five or something. Although I've no idea what I was doing between between the ages of like five and eleven. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I I, I basically never practiced. And I, we had piano lessons and my, my piano lesson was at, was at like probably 4.30 on a Monday um, for half an hour. And I remember that five o'clock on a Monday was my absolute favourite time of the week because that's the longest time, you know, until my next piano lesson. That was, that, was kind of my, that, was, that was my opinion of it, you know. Yeah, I, so I just never, never wanted to practice. And like I did, like I, 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 I see kids... You know, I guess it's kind of my friends, my friends' kids that are all, you know, like 
you know Al Cherry, the guitarist? Yeah, I know the name. He was yeah. telling me his 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 seven year old has just done his grade four piano. Right. I took I took my grade one when I was eleven. Yeah. So so I yeah I've no idea what I was doing for for those six years before I took my grade one. So that was doing all classical piano, right? It was it was well it was classical is probably a grand grand name for it. It was probably you know kind of nursery rhyme type stuff. Okay. Just kind of desperately simple playing little patterns i remember there was a, like a dozen a day book okay yeah i've seen all those yeah so, yes kind of simple technique stuff i mean obviously it, it clearly whatever i was doing in lessons it, it clearly didn't particularly inspire me yeah because there was zero practice going on for a good five or six years wow and then and then when did that all change well i bet so from 11 i did i did my grade one in 11 and then i did i did one grade every year then until I took my grade eight when I was 18, just before I went to college. But I remember kind of getting into it around 13 or 14. That's when I kind of started, started to kind of realize that you, if you put some work in, you'd get something back. Mm. And, you know, I kind of enjoyed getting my pieces together and stuff. But it was, I never, I never, I don't know why, but I never kind of, like it never occurred to me with, with all these classical pieces that I played when I did my grades, it never occurred to me to go and listen to a recording of that piece being played. And it also never occurred to me to try and be expressive with the music I was playing. It was all just, it was all just, can I play these notes correctly? Typewriting. Yeah, can I play it loudly where it says loudly and quietly where it says quiet? Um, so yeah, it, I kind of, yeah, I just never, I never really got it when I played classical music. I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to go back to it now, and I'm sure I'd get a lot more out of it. Yeah, it's kind of weird. So, when did, how did you get into jazz, and and not necessarily always playing what was written on the page? Well, I did, I so at some point very early on, I don't know when. I can yeah, I can't remember how I got introduced to it. But I'm sure everyone everyone who kind of is into playing the piano for a while gets introduced to boogie woogie so I, I kind of learned how to do that yeah i mean it was boogie woogie in c yeah at the same Standard. tempo all the time and yeah exactly like <laughs> nothing else I, so I don't know how that came about maybe 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 my parents got me a book or something and i managed to kind of read enough to to figure out how you do the kind of left hand you know baseline um and so i used to i, I got i was into that i, I enjoyed doing that um and there's, you know, obviously there's a bit of improvisation there, mm. but that was the extent of, of, of my improvising really um, for a long time. And then I got the way I got into jazz was 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 super random. We used to get a free music magazine called Making Music. Okay. And there was a there was a, like a reader's poll of the best the best instrumentalists on every instrument, maybe once a year. And at the time, I'd, I was, I'd taken up the saxophone. I was I was into playing the saxophone, um, and and it said that the best UK saxophonist was Courtney Pine. And then a friend of mine. I mean, this is quite late. This was I was doing my A levels, so I'd have been sixteen, I guess. Uh, and then a friend of mine said, "Oh, Courtney Pine's playing in Stafford, which is just down the road from Ridgely. Let's go." Um, and we went, and I'd, I'd never really heard, apart from the kind of whatever kind of jazzy things my mom would play at the dance school, I'd never really heard jazz before. Right. And and it just completely blew my mind. He was playing kind of Coltrane style. I remember there was a lot of soprano going on. 
Yeah. And it would just be, I remember <laughs> the tune I was really into at the time, it was just like a, an entirely um, diatonic melody with no no discernible har- harmony underneath that I, that I can remember. And then like 15 minutes of absolute mayhem, like time, no changes, sometimes <laughs> no time, no changes, just complete yeah. bonkers freak out. Yeah. And then he'd play the melody, this diatonic melody again, at which point the crowd would go mad because suddenly there's something they can they can kind of <laughs> grip onto. But yeah, I remember that. That kind of completely blew me away at the time. And then I just started, just kind of decided there and then that that I really liked jazz. And then I would go to the um, the library in Stafford. The, you know, they've got a music library, and and I would kind of indiscriminately listen to um, you know Courtney Pine and 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 Charlie Parker. Not really being able to tell much difference between the two, despite the fact that they're fifty or sixty years apart. You know. And you know, just kind of going, oh yeah, that's that's jazz. I remember listening to a <laughs> a Sonny Rollins album on a, this was a, this was on a record on an LP, and it was a kind of crazy little little kind of vamp thing. Listened to it for about four or five minutes before my big brother came in and said, "That is skipping." It's just <laughs> that's just the same. That's the same eight seconds of music yeah. going round and round, and I was just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not realizing yeah 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 you know. but that kind of i remember that that yeah suddenly my horizons have kind of opened become a lot broader but it, but i mean i think that's the difference the big difference between growing up then and, and now is 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 the complete lack of of exposure to to anything really you know i was i was super lucky because i had that exposure to music through my mum's dance school and my, and my dad's piano playing but obviously there was no internet I don't know I guess, I guess you grew up with the internet right sort of it came in sort of uh, quite okay. early so yeah. I'd say yeah it I did grow up with it but I do remember a time when there there wasn't it if that makes sense yeah, yeah I was right at that age where half of my childhood was kind of with it um so yeah it, it, it stuff is access stuff was so much more accessible I, yeah. I reckon the I, 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 the I, the concept of going to a library and sitting with headphones on in a library listening to music is quite alien for me. So I guess maybe yeah, I am more on the internet side of things. Mm. Yeah, well, no, yeah. So I, at the time when when I was living at my at, my, at home, I I would yeah, you go to the library and then take take whatever you found, but it would be a kind of you know such a random <laughs> collection of of things that I happened to find, you know. Um, and I don't think I ever really, well, yeah, it was just, it, it, that, that was, that's definitely the way, it, the way it was kind of my upbringing is just a series of really random events. So when I was at college, I was doing my A-levels, I did A-level theatre studies and a guy came in, had been kind of drafted in to write a play, especially for our group. Okay. And he played a bit of piano, a bit, a kind of a bit of jazz piano, um, and so I told him, I, this was kind of, literally must have been weeks or, or even days after I'd just been to this Courtney Pine concert and decided I liked jazz. And and he said, oh, are you going to go to Leeds College of Music and do the jazz course? And I was like, what's that? Right. And he's, he kind of said, you know, this place exists. And I was like, yep, doing that. And that was what I did. But that, I've no idea that the way things would have turned out if if that guy hadn't happened to be there and... 
and told me about it because there's no way I would have found out about that that course. It was the only it was the only jazz course I think at the time. So I guess I just wouldn't have certainly at that time I wouldn't have studied jazz then. You know. Yeah, it's amazing how those. I've I had a similar situation like that where one person just said, "Oh, you should just check out this thing." And had they had not have just decided to say to me, "You should check out this place," <laughs> yeah. God knows what my life would have would have would have been like. You know, I, I may, might never have found that and gone on a completely different path. So it's amazing how important yeah. those like conversations are with young people. Yeah, but then you know, at the same time, maybe if it, if it hadn't have been at that moment, it might have been another moment. Yeah, you know, if you're you kind know. of, I guess I I guess I probably always was the kind of person that that would be receptive to jazz and mm. kind of you know lots of lots of different types of music so maybe if i hadn't have found it then i you know would have come, come a bit later on so you must have been at leeds at a, a really exciting time right if that was the only jazz course in the uk and loads of people came out of leeds didn't they and loads of people you play with now yeah um yeah and, and like in terms of the the teachers as well like in my second and third year my piano teacher was nicky isles mm. who was who was just amazing and and like was i mean I, I kind of still really you know i really look up to her as a teacher because she kind of she always kind of i always left that lesson feeling inspired right and never left the lesson having having had too much stuff dumped on me, you know. Mm. Which I think, if I think about my own teaching, I, I kind of, I'm all about like, look at this, check this out. Mm. Hey, this is cool. Do this, learn this. Whereas, whereas she was like, oh, what you've been doing this week? That sounds great. You could maybe do this here, and you know, check out this piece. This is, a, you know, kind of just little pointers. Yeah. Um. So that was that was great, and yeah, and the and. I mean, I did feel, I did kind of, like when I got to Leeds, I thought, oh, this is incredible. I found like 60 soulmates. I'd never met anybody who was really into jazz before. Right. Um, and suddenly there were, it, there was kind of all these people that were, that were all into jazz and it was, it kind of seemed incredible. And I was really, you know, that was I probably, that's, that's when I really kind of went for it with practicing. But then it kind of, I remember that there was a, there used to be a, um, a jazz festival in February each year. And I remember there being a, a kind of real, um, every, we kind of worked towards the jazz festival for the, for the first half of the year and everybody did their own bands. And then there'd always be a kind of a, like a, a bit of a depression after the jazz festival mm -hmm. when, when there's nothing really to look forward to except your, except for your end of year exams, you know, um, and that was, I think the kind of, so the apex, the kind of high point of the, of, of, of that course was like the second year jazz festival. Um, and that was, that was really cool. But then I kind of, by my third year, um, I kind of decided that, I kind of realized that most people on the jazz course weren't really kind of serious about kind of making it as jazz musicians. As we know, it's, it's ridiculously hard. It takes so much dedication and most people just kind of wanted to go and have a drink every night which, right which wasn't what i was doing i was going you know i was kind of do my classes during the day come back in the evening do a few more hours practice so it kind of it ended up certainly for my last year for the third year it was kind of a bit of a miserable time uh because because there wasn't much of a social life, I just kind of decided, well, I don't like these guys. They're not, they don't care about jazz. <laughs> I mean, that's how. 
<laughs> that's kind of how single-minded I probably was at the time. Like I remember seeing, I remember seeing some guy coming into college in his sports gear because he'd just just done a workout and, and thinking, "What? What do you think you're doing? Like <laughs> wasting time doing a workout? Yeah. You're supposed to be a jazz musician. You know, you're supposed to be shedding all day, every day. That's what right. you do." Um, sounds like you had an amazing work ethic, though. I mean, whether it was miserable or not, I mean, it sounds like you really, you really knuckled into it and really sort of, if you compare it to yeah. where you were as a kid. Yeah, uh, but then, but then, the thing is, I had such a long way to go. I know I'm kind of jumping backwards and forwards, but when I, so when I, when I arrived at, at Leeds, like I, I scraped through the interview, I, I was only allowed to go on the proviso that I passed my grade eight, and I could basically still only play boogie woogie in c right okay um i love that one yeah <laughs> but we were all terrible in, in particularly in, i think in my year my year wasn't a great year like the year the year below me had uh jim watson in it right who was brilliant um year above me um i forget the name of it um, his name now great great sax player he's in he's in london now but yeah um and Mark Hodgson, the bassist, was I think the year above me. Oh, Jazz, Jazz Frank's guitarist was in my year, and Tory Freestone, and Mark, uh, Matt Home, the drummer. Great. Yeah, so they were they were so those, <laughs> which is basically I'm I'm also listing my friends at the time. So yeah. I, I you know I, I basically decided I'm only friends with the people that are serious about music, you know. Um, but anyway, so I so I yeah so I, I kind of got such a long way to to go just to get up to kind of basic proficiency i remember i spent most of my first year just getting my left hand voicings just like you know rootless left hand voicings sorted out i remember being in a um in a small band led by one of the teachers and at the time all i could do was you know i'd be reading my chart and go okay b flat major seven here we go uh smash there's my left hand voicing right now let's play some right hand oh no, next chord G7. Yeah. Here we go. And so <laughs> I remember, the, yeah, I remember the the teacher going right. We'll play this tune, and we'll have a tenor solo, and then we'll have a guitar solo, and then we'll have a piano solo, sort of. Because <laughs> oh. I just couldn't couldn't actually manage to do any soloing. But I guess I guess it kind of, I guess it means I was I was doing what I what I needed to do rather than just kind of blagging blagging my way with the left hand voicings and and you know just playing a. A solo. I was like, no, I'm mm. going to sound terrible yeah. for, <laughs> for this entire performance while I get my left hand voicings together. Wow. So you're obviously playing a lot at, at college with as part of like your small bands and things. But were you forming like your own bands and doing your own thing and pl doing lots of playing with other people? Yeah, late, certainly later on. Um, second, I, I think I probably probably put my own band together for the second year, or was playing in plenty of plenty of other people's bands and and then i did <laughs> i think in the third year the festival in the third year i did like the phil peskett pop band nice and we and we did like sting and nick kershaw and um yeah i've no idea what the pppb yeah <laughs> but i i was still playing the saxophone then I, I remember i got jim watson to play piano for certainly for some of it maybe maybe the whole the whole thing and and then i tried to do impressions of like Branford Marsalis in in Sting's band, you know. Do you still play sax now, or is that not? A, did that sort you know, of? No, well, it's sitting right next to me, but it's not been out of its case for quite a few years. I have to admit. What sax is it? A tenor sax? Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a nice one. It's a Selma Super 80. Right. Um, but yeah, it's a shame. I mean, I mean, I I don't, I don't get a chance to practice the piano most of the time, let alone yeah my second instrument. Wow. So when you you after after Leeds, you went to the Guildhall. Am I right? Yeah. Which again, you know, that was just the thing that people did. Yeah, you followed the path. Yeah, it was very much. It was very much the only course course, course of events. Some people stayed in Leeds. Right. And kind of went to the gym. Yeah, <laughs> well, those idiots doing exercise. Um, yeah, some people stuck around in Leeds, but yeah, that was that was kind of, you know, I remember a teacher saying, "Oh, yeah, you're doing well. You're going to go to Guildhall then." Yeah, and I was like, "Yeah, okay," um, but yeah, and so I, so I think, yeah, I, de- I remember definitely kind of feeling like oh, this has been a slog. Certainly, the the last year. Mm has been a real slog and, and not very much fun so I'm gonna I'm gonna make it my mission to have fun doing the you know the guilt hall and I and I was really lucky because I'd you know I got great some great tuition from particularly from Nicky and, and from other people there was there were great teachers at, at, some great teachers at Leeds um, Bill Kinghorn was there who was really good um, Graham Hearn was another teacher who was who was who was really really cool right um so I'd got I'd got good teachers. I mean, you know, the thing about having Nicky was when I, mean, I felt a bit guilty that I was getting lessons from Nicky and other people on other instruments weren't getting the same standard of right. I see teaching. You know, so I I was the lucky one and and kind of I'd got a lot of stuff together by then. And so as a result, like the, you know, the the Guildhall postgrad course was kind of renowned for for being like really tough because they kind of throw basically like a degree's worth of of material at you in, in a single year um and i you know i guess it's you know partly being a piano player as well you're not going to struggle with that kind of you know all that you know harmonic materials work you know as much as a, a drummer or a singer mm. would so so i kind of i kind of maybe took my foot off the gas for that year and just enjoyed myself um but again it was it was like it was kind of like it was like meeting a, bit, a bunch of soulmates again you know those who who definitely all, all definitely were really serious about about getting good at, at, at playing you know playing jazz that was that was definitely kind of my um all-consuming driving force at the time you know amazing so when you so when you left college how did how did that work you kind of got catapulted out and then into the kind of professional world were you already gigging at that point did you kind of already have a lot of stuff going on Hardly ever. Like I was still. I mean, you you would be. You would really be surprised. I think at the how low the standard was. Certainly my standard. Like I couldn't do a gig. I I did a few gigs in my third year at Leeds. Like very very few, earning about thirty quid on a gig. Like I remember doing a a, a solo piano gig in a in a jeweler's shop that had just opened up, and reading like reading through the real book playing everything as a rubato ballad because I couldn't literally couldn't play solo piano and play in time at the same time. Yeah. Um, I definitely would have only been able to play, play anything convincing in a trio format. You know, I could do my left hand voicings and I could kind of play, you know, I was into like Jarrett and, and John Taylor and Bill Evans and stuff. Um, so I could, I could kind of, I could be reasonably convincing as long as there's a bass player, playing the bass notes for me and so yeah so when I left college at Guildhall I remember I'd kind of started 
started um there were a few singers at guilt hall and i, I remember started I, I kind of started out you know doing that kind of being a singer's accompanist because those are the ones like the singers are the ones that are going out and getting the gigs yeah absolutely. because no because other instrumentalists aren't going to give them gigs <laughs> so so they they'd be ringing me to do all the all these terrible 30 quid gigs in a in a pub yeah but that was that was kind of you know really good really good practice absolutely but i was but i was still terrible um i think i i think i was yeah i think i was on income support you know basically on the dole for probably six months after after i left right left college until until <laughs> until the big gig started rolling in yeah. you know like <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know 50 quid gigs instead yeah. of 30 quid gigs yeah no, that's good um, i mean it might be a really cool time to talk about that now so when when did that sort of happen when did you start when did you start getting sort of these other really exciting opportunities because i don't know if anyone who's listening knows but phil's played with some really really amazing people for example nick kershaw and there's i, I was i was i was doing mm. some research and there's all these amazing pictures of you kind of playing in stadiums and you know right. thousands of people watching when did that mm. when did all of that kind of stuff kick off for you um well that was a bit later so yeah i guess the big big um i guess what you're referring to i mean the earliest the earliest um iteration of that is the stuff i did with maloko yeah which was i think 2003 to 2004 and that just came about through you know people people that i knew like people we all know like um i'd 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 shared a flat with rob malarkey um a couple of years after i left college right um he was playing He'd been playing with a band called Zero Seven, yeah, and the 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 keyboard player in that band um, is called Eddie Stevens, and Eddie Stevens was kind of the keyboard player with Maloko as well. Right. Eddie Eddie just asked Rob to recommend um, piano players. I wasn't even the first call. I think the first call was uh, Simon Colan, and he turned it down. Ah. Um, which <laughs> I think Eddie Eddie Stevens took great enjoyment in telling me like halfway through the tour he's like we didn't ask you first phil <laughs> oh, it, it don't matter but it, we didn't savage. ask you first <laughs> yeah so yeah so that was that was great and and quite a, a you know quite a new experience and then the thing with nick came on came much later that was kind of only uh maybe 2016 or something okay Yes, there's, but there's, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you were chatting up earlier on about playing jazz yeah. and rootless voicings and all this kind of thing and learning how to improvise and play over jazz standards. Yeah. And then a lot of these gigs are obviously very different styles of music that you, you went yeah. on to do. So how did you transition from the kind of jazz world into the popular music world? Well, I think it had always been there. I'd always, like, I, you know, me and, me and my brother, my brother played guitar and drums and so me like when we were kids me and my brother would always have a band right um our first band was called collision oh what a um, name yeah That's brilliant <laughs> with a k <laughs> it should have been a k we didn't think of that yeah. um and so we'd so and we'd you know like my brother was was into kind of rock music and i you know and i just kind of went along with that very often in fact the first uh, for the first version of that band was was basically heavy metal music and the band was so heavy they wouldn't let me play any notes on my on my keyboard i was right. only allowed to do like wind sound effects <laughs> so they go and i go whoosh, whoosh, 
<laughs> oh, I remember the old Yamaha keyboard used to have the wind, the yeah, sound yeah. of it. Yeah, so nice. That was, that was the okay. only thing I was allowed to do. But then we kind of, you know, we switched it up and there, were, and there was kind of, like I remember learning a Guns N' Roses song and and we did, I mean, it was a bit of a mishmash. Uh, yeah, kind of like 80s hair rock, you know. Right. Um, and obviously I was, I was, you know, the thing with Nick Kershaw, I was, I was kind of the target audience for, for Nick Kershaw stuff when I was about 11 or 12 years old, you know. Okay. So it would always kind of run alongside my my jazz study mm. and so i guess you know uh, it must have been that this the singers you know because very often it, it, you know your average jazz singer on a jazz course loves pop music as well yeah so they're always going to say oh let's let's play this pop song and so i so i guess i kind of made sure i could play in a in a non-jazz style as well um so I guess it kind of always ran alongside, really. And, and as I said, you know, at Lee's I did a I did a pop band, mm. and I, I did a couple of pop things in my final performance. So it was kind of always there. It never left left me. I mean, I think the thing with Nick Kershaw was kind of like his '80s albums, the first four albums, they've kind of really stuck with me. And at every at every time of my life, I've gone when I whenever I've gone back to it, I've always thought, oh yeah, this is properly great music you know um so i think i was kind of lucky to to have been exposed to that at a really formative age wow i think one of the things that people who are listening to this might be really interested in is how how a gig like that with with someone like nick kershaw and you go and see see them live and you see the whole show how does that get rehearsed how does how does that whole process work <laughs> yeah it gets it gets rehearsed in a hurry that's that's a, a yeah quite a a telling thing about the state of the music industry in during the last 20 years like right. going back to the maloko thing when i played with maloko we we rehearsed every day for a month before we went on tour right um it was amazing but that kind of thing just never happens now there, there just isn't the budget for it with with with, with nick kershaw we only ever do one one day's rehearsal before whatever run of gigs we've got coming up. So you get sent a list of songs and you have to learn them all? Yeah. For the first thing I did with him, I I went to his studio and we just kind of I mean I you know, by that by that point I'd already learned the songs and got the sounds together and we just went through them and he and he kind of he went, Oh, make that sound a bit more like this. You don't need to play that part. I mean there was a lot of there's quite a bit of like me because I you know, it's all this it's the music. If you if you if you cut me open, yeah, what comes out is 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 Nick Kershaw's eighties albums. <laughs> wow, that's so nice to go full circle though as well. Yeah, it's it is yeah it, um yeah I was really lucky to kind of be offered that and and like and from the moment I was offered it, offered the you know this band it was about six weeks before the first gig, and I just literally spent all day every day, like I mean I kind of knew the music already but like properly learning how to play it and and programming sounds yeah and so yeah so 99 percent of the of the preparation work for that was done at home but um so when i went to see nick i was kind of like you know this hand on this keyboard this hand on this keyboard then suddenly switching to this or patch change patch change and he's like you don't need to do that you know this this part's on track this no one's ever played that keyboard part you, you're working too hard i'm like well can i do it anyway 
because yeah. I, I really want to. So I kind of, so I've made that gig quite a challenging gig on keyboard. Wow. Just because I wanted to, I wanted to make it sound like the record, you know, I want like his, his, his tunes have kind of got, you know, it's like one vocal phrase and then suddenly the keyboards go bow, bow, and then another vocal phrase. And it's like, bow. yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to put all those kind of little bells and whistles in because that's the way it goes to, as far mm. as I'm concerned. Whereas he, you know, Nick kind of, he doesn't spend all his waking hours listening to his albums from the 80s. So he's, he's used to his live version, which is, you know, you just play, you just play a version that works yeah. on some good keyboard sounds. So he's like, you know, I mean, he's, he kind of indulged me, you know, he kind of lets me do these things, but I, but I do get the thing. He's like, just, just play the right notes, Phil, just kind of give us a decent, decent sound and, stop stop being so picky about it yeah 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 that's amazing that's really really mm. cool so like how would you go about learning a song what is your process for doing that if you've got a gig coming up and there's a new song to learn how do yeah. you what's your process well so i always start by writing a chart for it oh okay and i know a lot of people don't do that um i like to i like to see it written down and i like it because it forces you to learn it properly you can't get away with with kind of not being quite sure what you know what the notes are in that chord. Mm. If you've got to write the chord symbol, you have to know exactly what's going on. Um, so that kind of forces me to to learn it really accurately. Can you just explain for anyone who's listening what exactly is a chart when you say a chart? Do you, is that is that the melody you're write, you're writing out on the stave using notation? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it depends. So in its simplest form, it might just be a chord might just be a chord chart, just chord symbols. Um, but yeah, anything, anything like I won't, I don't, I won't generally write out anything that other people play or, you know, I okay. won't write the melody Yeah. that this being sung. I'll write chord symbols all the time. And then anything, anything that where, where there's a, a specific keyboard part, I'll write out the specific keyboard parts. And sometimes it, that'll be, I might do a shorthand version of that where I'll write down, I'll just notate the top note and then I'll just kind of assume that I'm going to play the right notes from the chord symbol yeah or if it's if it's a very specific voicing that i wouldn't have got to otherwise or you know i mean that's an interesting thing about pop music i think as opposed to jazz is is that pop music is very often much more specific than jazz jazz is kind of open if you if you write c major seven nobody cares if i put in a ninth and a, mm. and a 13th and maybe even a sharp 11 but if it's if it's if it's C major seven in pop music, it's just C major seven. If it, you know, if if there's a ninth in there, I'm going to write C major nine. And and if it's just a chord of C, that is just a chord of C. It's not, you know, three thousand other things. You know. So yeah. So very often, I, I you've got to be very specific. So it requires those those voicings. Like if I'm writing a a chart for a for a jazz standard, I'm never going to write any notation because I'm just going to write the chords and it, and it's. The, the notes I actually play are entirely up to me. Whereas if I'm if I'm playing a pop song, very often the exact voicing is the thing that people know and they and they want to hear that. You know. So you've got your chart. You've got your chart for the piece of music you're going to be playing. What's the next stage of the process? Do you actually play it with the chart on the gig, or how do, how do you get it off the chart and kind of into your into your memory? Yeah, sometimes sometimes I play it on the gig. I had a <laughs> I had a tough experience. Recently, we did a tour of Germany, and I've 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 got 
two young kids now. They're, they're nearly two and nearly five, and right. the little one wasn't sleeping. She she'd had constant ear infection, so she was waking up all night. And I arrived for the rehearsal of the tour, woefully underprepared. Um, so I had to read, had to read the charts for the for these tunes. Um, I didn't know. I also didn't realise until a couple of days before that that the first day was a rehearsal followed by a gig. I thought it was just a rehearsal, but there was a gig on that night. So um, yeah, so I had to read uh, my 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 charts, which are, which on on next gig is incredibly difficult because there's there's so much kind of chopping and changing from one keyboard to another, and, and you know different parts going in, in all different hands. So, so every time I looked at my hand to change to change keyboards, I'd get lost in my chart. Oh wow! There were some real car crash moments. Blimey! So um so yeah so on, certainly on next gig and any any you know any gig that's more important, I'll 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 try and make sure that I know the music well enough. So I don't have to read it because it's just it's it's more trouble than it's worth. If you any time you've got to change from one keyboard to another, it's really impractical. To go back to the chart, absolutely. Hi, it's Adam here. I just want to quickly interrupt the podcast to ask you a very small favour. If you're getting lots of value from these conversations and want to stay up to date with all our latest episodes, please do subscribe to the Keys Coach wherever you get your podcasts. This means that you can continue to hear these great conversations and you'll be notified each time a new episode comes out. And if you're feeling even more generous, please do consider leaving us a review. This helps others to discover the podcast and join this community. Thank you so much for your support. Hit that subscribe button. Let's get back to the conversation. It also be, might be cool to chat a little bit about uh, the Soul Family Sundays, because I know this has become an iconic night in London now, and so many people go and sing at this event, and it's it's been going for like 12 or maybe even longer. I didn't know how up-to-date the website was that I was looking at, yeah. but 12 I, I years? I'm not sh- yeah, I'm not sure the figure. It might even be 13 now, but, and, and, that, and even that is only how long it's been running at, at, at Ronnie's. We, we did that night for years at the, a couple of other venues before that. So we've we've been we've been doing it for however long time, yeah. Can you just explain to the people that are listening exactly what that night is and where they can go and check that out? Yeah, so we do it once a month. It's usually it's usually I think it's like the third Sunday of a month at Ronnie Scott's. It does kind of chop and change a little bit, but it's always on a Sunday. And we it's a ten piece band with Nat- Natalie Williams, and it's very often Brendan Riley, Vula Malinga, Vanessa Haynes, quite often at the moment, or Charlene Hector. But basically, some of the best singers um, in the country, and some of the best musicians in the country as well. Um, we kind of throw together a set every month. There's there's usually a guest singer who does probably three or four tunes, and then each singer. So there's four singers, and each singer normally does a, one or two tunes. Right. And we always end up with too many tunes to rehearse. Basically, there is no rehearsal. The the sound check is the rehearsal. Um, so, um, yeah, we always, we always run out of time. So the, so the deal is everyone has to learn their part really well before they get there. So the, so the, the track, the recorded track is, is king. You know, you just learn your bit from the recording. If you make it sound like the recording, then there's a chance of it, of it, of it working. Um, and so in, you know, in the rehearsal stroke sound check, We'll probably run each tune once, wow. and if it's if it's 
a terrible car crash we might rehearse bits of it again and then we'll go it'll be okay and and it you know fortunately fortunately it normally is okay we kind of you know there's a, in between the 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 sound check and the gig there's a, there's a couple of hours where the singers will kind of go to that tiny little room backstage at Ronnie's and rehearse all their all their parts and the and the band will go and have some food and kind of talk about what went wrong <laughs> sometimes those gigs can be in some ways those gigs can be the best because everyone's kind of on heightened alert the whole time oh yeah so everyone's yeah. really listening i do this gig at the 606 with this amazing thing called beverly ski and she just sends out a list of all these songs with just the key next to it you know this song f and obviously you have to put these songs in different keys as well quite a lot of the time mm. um and uh yeah, because everyone's listening the whole time and just so aware of what's going on and what's happening next. Sometimes that can make yeah. it the most exciting yeah. environment to play. Yeah, it is fun. And it's great with Soul Family because we because we have played together for so long. It's kind of, I kind of think of it like a, it's a bit of an ecosystem, you know, like me, certainly me and Martin, the drummer, we generally write charts for everything. Right. Um Rob, the bass player, will sometimes write charts, but sometimes just memorise it all. Ben, guitarist, doesn't doesn't write charts. The the horns generally do, and there's a, <laughs> there's always a certain amount of blagging going on. Yeah, but you just know when you can rely on other people to to kind of put you right. The only danger is when when like me and the bass player and guitarist all go wrong at the same time, and then it's and then it's like. Armageddon, you know. How do we get out? Yeah. yeah. That's going to be the hardest thing of getting out and sometimes working out how to end songs because quite often you don't ever rehearse the endings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It's just you can't. So you end up this loop trying to work out the best way to sort of bring it all to a close. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's definitely a lot of a lot of very shaky endings, which is quite often a shame, you know. Yeah. Because you know, something really vibey might have happened and then. Yeah. And then, the, and then the ending is like, like, oh, I thought we were going to do that, oh, but we did this, and <laughs> nobody finished on the same beat. No, it's cool. So, um, I know teaching's always been a really big part of your life as well. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about kind of your philosophy? Because if anyone who doesn't know, Phil uh, did an amazing series of courses at uh, Trinity Lab, which is like a music college in Greenwich, teaching musicianship, which I always find a bit of a strange word, actually, musicianship, because I'm never yeah. entirely sure what it is. It's kind yeah, of just it's like a gen general. It's kind of like music theory, but it's practical music theory. Right? How would you explain it? Yeah, well, there, there, were, there were a few years when musicianship became, uh, the name of it became language of music, which I kind of liked. Because I, I, that, I, you know, if I do have a teaching philosophy, that that's that's pretty much it. it it's music is a language, exactly like a spoken language. And if if I've ever got kind of if I ever question myself about how I should approach something, I always kind of ask myself how how it would be in a in a spoken language. You know, things like learning learning kind of melody or or chord progressions or whatever it is um you learn a vocabulary so you know people are very often there's a there's always a debate about whether you should transcribe entire solos improvised solos and of course you should but that's that's not the end point that's just the beginning you've then got to learn from the solo you've got to break that down into 
the equivalent of individual words and then you've got to kind of be able to, to use phrases and then put them together into sentences you know so yeah so I, I guess yeah the course kind of um deals with harmony um which which for me is chord progressions that's the that's the vocabulary so i have the vocabulary of chord progressions you know th putting three or four chords together and then there's a vocabulary of of melodic ideas um which for me i kind of spent a lot of time dealing with kind of basically four notes worth of melody like four quavers worth of melody okay um and then and then same thing for for rhythms so like four let's say four quavers worth of time or four semiquavers what what rhythms can you get out of that so there's a kind of little vocabulary of those um so to me that's what i kind of realized over the years or that's the, that's the conclusion that i've that i've com come to over the years is that you can you can break everything down into vocabulary I mean, I guess my teaching has been, uh, I've kind of dealt with, it's the nuts and bolts stuff mm. rather than kind of the inspiration side of things. I kind of, I guess I've just assumed that, that the students are going to bring that themselves, you know, so it's kind of, you know, it's getting your craft down in order, in order to practice your art, you, you know, get, get the craft down well enough so that the, all that stuff is out of the way. And you're just thinking about the art stuff. I think that's one of the things that I really got out of all of your classes because I was a student of Phil's for for a number of years and um mm. is is how you get the most out of a small amount of material. Right. And um how you can then take whether that's a voicing or a particular chord shape and then think okay, I'm not just going to learn that chord in that position, say if it's a C major 7 voicing. I'm going to look at how I can use that on this chord or how I can mm. use that in this on this mode. Yeah. I mean is that still stuff you practice now? Absolutely, yeah. That, yeah, I mean that that kind of for me that um, that runs through everything. I'm so I really I really like the idea of kind of having original material and then a bunch of operations that you apply to that original material. And if you and if you if you kind of work if you work it that way, it means that your original material can be really small. Right. Um, like I was, <laughs> I was looking back over a thing that I remember giving out a couple of times. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of particularly geeky, but the thing about four, four, four notes worth of melody, um, I think I, I kind of figured out that you can, you can, if you just have five original phrases, like a, one of them being like a scale and another one being an arpeggio, and there's, you know, three others. And then you've got, I think it's three three operations, three methods of variation, which are um, so taking it taking it through the diatonic scale, and then changing the inversion and changing the note order. Then you can describe any diatonic four note phrase as wow. being as being derived from one of those five phrases and and uh, you know some some of those um, operations that you're doing on it. So I think working that in that way. It can be really efficient, mm. and it and it can so it's so it's a kind of it's a way of it's a way of being able to identify something and a way of being able to generate ideas out of other ideas. Wow, that's really cool. I think you were kind of just getting onto that kind of thing when I was when I was studying studying with you. I think it kind of went even even more sort of hardcore further down the line. I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the thing is you can't you, uh, you know this I I taught I guess first and second year degree level and you can't get that deeply into something that's that's 
that geeky mm. <laughs> for, certainly for very long um but yeah I, I i think that's kind of um that continues to be something that i'm i'm working on when i've got time to do it and it, and it's kind of uh it's all related to the kind of stuff i did did on memory as well yeah i wanted to talk to you about that so I read somewhere that you're a world ranking memory champion. Is that is that true? <laughs> I am a world ranking memory champion, but the <laughs> the caveat to that is that anybody who enters a memory championship becomes, <laughs> becomes well. a, a world ranking memory champion. Oh, yeah, fantastic! So, so, yeah, I'm, so oh no, but I haven't. I've got to enter. Okay, so I've just got to enter. Have you actually got to turn up? Yeah, you've got to do the you've got to do the the competition. Yeah, so so okay. this was you can't just buy the ticket. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't. Can't be a spectator. This is the right. thing that basically happened to to me. Um, I'm sure you know the guitarist Mike Outram. Yeah. So me and him kind of got into it at, at the same time. I can't remember exactly when this was. I'm guessing about 2013 or 2014 or something. And he, I remember him saying to me, "Oh, there's a, there's this memory championship, some somewhere or other. Should we go?" I was like, "Yeah, okay, let's go." Thinking thinking we we're just going to go and watch it. But he was like, "Oh no, we're entering." <laughs> and I was like, really, we're going to enter, but we can't do it. And it was like, well, we'll learn to do it. So, what, what exactly does what exactly does that mean to be a memory champion? What kind of things are you remembering? How's well, how's well, it not, work? So, I'm not I'm, I'm not a champion. I'm a I'm a yeah champion because I haven't won anything. I participated. Okay, sorry. Well, I, com- I, I competed. Even the fact you've competed is incredibly yeah, impressive. Yeah, I'm a memory. <laughs> you could call me a world ranking memory athlete because that's okay, what, that's what fantastic. they call themselves. But what does ranking, that actually mean you're doing? Well, <clears throat> it's basically, it's really lucky that we didn't go to see, we didn't go to watch to be a spectator because it's the most boring thing you could ever possibly watch. It looks like people are sitting in an exam. Right. Um, so there are, there are lots of different rounds. Um, for instance, like five minute numbers where you, you just memorize as many numbers as you can <laughs> in five minutes so there's, there's you turn over a sheet of paper you know a sheet of a4 paper which is full of you know it just goes three six four nine five seven one right. like, i think there, there might have been 30 30 numbers per line and you just try and mem- memorize you know as many of those as many of those digits as you can in five minutes and then you and then they say time up and now it's the recall, and then you write down as many numbers in sequence as you can remember. Right. Wow. And there's, you know, then the, then they do the same thing with binary numbers, which is just ones and zeros. Um, and it's a it's a really weird thing. It's very weird. I remember my other half, Emmy. Um, I was I was sitting in my studio practicing my binary numbers, and she came in and she just goes, "Phil, you're wasting your life." <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like um, someone someone would get into in like COVID when they're sort of going slightly mad, you know? What yeah. I, mean? Locked down. I, thought, I thought you were going. I thought you were going to say sounds like someone was jealous. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think she was jealous. Um, yeah, it is a very weird thing, and I and I, you know, who knows whether I, whether my time would have been better spent, I don't know, recording an album to release or or something. But um, it's an interesting thing to me. Obviously, I, you know, I've got that kind of those kind of interests, geeky interests. Um, but what it so what it is, you, um, I mean, you can kind of. It's easy to demonstrate in terms of binary numbers. Obviously, binary numbers 
have no meaning if it's just you know like one zero zero one yeah it doesn't mean anything but you you then give it meaning so this is your this is your kind of your your preparation your practice is to say right i'm gonna i'm gonna look at for instance every six numbers every six binary numbers okay i can't remember if i actually use this this exact system or not but however many numbers you you decide to take at one time is kind of this is is how strong your system is going to be so if you just looked at four numbers and thought of that as a single idea that's not going to be as strong a system as every six numbers but if you took like every eight numbers you've got to do an awful lot more preparation because you've got to kind of recognize suddenly an eight figure number but let's say we're taking the six figure number i know this yeah. is getting very geeky already no it's so, I, i'm trying to keep up yeah yeah so if i if we had a, a, a six figure binary number that went one zero zero one zero zero so it looks like 100 100 then you could you could make you could imagine a scene where you're driving a car and you see coming down you see on a signpost 100 mile an hour on both side both sides of the road okay so like okay a circle like a speed limit sign on both sides and it says 100 100 so now if you if you if you ever come across that sequence of of ones and zeros where it says 100 100 you can think oh car okay so that becomes a car and then you you kind of for 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 all the other numbers all the other six six figure binary numbers you come up with some other strong image like that and then how do you how do you remember the order of the car or the <clears throat> The mountain or whatever so, it is so, yeah good question so that so that's the other main thing which is called the memory palace and all you do is you you think of a a journey let's say around your house um so the first your first location might be your front door right and then the next location might be your hallway and the next location might be the door to your living room so all we would do in this situation is you imagine arriving at your front door and suddenly a car bursts through your front door, com completely breaking that, that door down and maybe runs you over or maybe you, you, you get out of the way just in time. And that's job done. Then you move on to your next binary number and you, and you say, right, in the hallway, um, maybe, maybe the next number is like 101101. I'm kind of choosing really easy ones. And maybe you decide that that looks like kind of two crabs pincers wow okay and then so you said so then you imagine a, a crab in your hallway so suddenly just with that with that really simple idea like we've just we've just learnt 12 binary numbers there binary digits which anybody could recite back to you one zero zero one zero zero one zero one one zero one so it's wow, so that's okay. what the memory thing is all about so so dr dragging it back away from geekiness for a second what it the, the my main takeaway from the learning the memory stuff it, it kind of has demystified learning for me because i could because i know that i can just take anything and make it into repertoire i can take anything and make it into something it's called that so that thing is called chunking where you take yeah. a chunk of whatever I've it heard is of that. yeah so um so like a 251 is is a chunk of of harmony and the first four notes of a scale is, is a chunk of melody. So you've literally, you've brought it back to music as well. So you use it in your playing, do you? Or is it less so? I don't know. Well, I've tried. I've, I mean, I haven't got there. I've, I've tried. The closest I've got, and I did this in the last couple of years 
when I was teaching musicianship is I is I did I did a repertoire of rhythms which we put it was twenty four rhythms and we and we we um, Memory Palace was the was the college library at Trin- Trinity and the, so we deposited those twenty four rhythms around the library and so my idea was that you 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 could be doing a solo and during the solo you imagine yourself walking around the library and you'll see all those images for your for your rhythms and that will trigger off an idea and the great thing about rhythm is obviously obviously you can you can always stick it into a solo at whatever point you're at you don't have to wait for the right chord to come around yeah yeah we so we basically did that work i haven't quite got to the point i can kind of do it if i really really think about it but i i would just need to practice it more and i reckon i reckon you could do it and if you if you took that further and did a, you know a bigger vocabulary of rhythms and, and apply that to other stuff. My theory is that it would make you a pretty unique type of musician. You're kind of you've got access. You've got kind of like free access to all sorts of kind of creative material. But the but the, the difference is the the unique thing is is that you're you've got access to that with your conscious mind rather than your kind of you're unconscious. You're kind of you're not relying on on whatever it is that, that normally fires off those kind of creative impulses. You know, you know, you, if you do a solo and you just think, "Oh, I've got no ideas today," but but if you if you did it this way with the Memory Palace, mm. your ideas you can literally you can go to the library. Yeah, go to the yeah. library, pick one out. I say, "Oh, yeah. that's a good idea." I, I also find it interesting that that of those twenty four rhythms, some of them are more interesting than others. Right. Okay. Some of them are, are kind of they lend themselves to to being creative. firing off. Yeah, so you so you could have your favourite rhythms, so that that you know that, that library becomes there would be yeah some some way that that landscape changes, or there's some way you'd have some way of seeing it that reflects which ones are your favourite, which ones are your go-to rhythms. You know. Wow, mm. it's pretty unique. <laughs> I think it is, and yeah. I, yeah, I just <laughs> I turned I turned fifty this year, um, and and I and, you know obviously that a big milestone like that makes you think about mm-hmm. about your life, and I really I kind of really feel like I'm in a race against time to to do all, to have do all these you know, different to, things, yeah, play play out all these all these ideas. You, you when you're young, it, it honestly seems. I mean, I'm sure. You know, we're all we're all we're all alive, and, and yeah, it seems like you've got all the time in the world. Yeah, of course. For a long time, and then suddenly, you know, I, you know, me being this age has coincided with with having young kids, and therefore zero spare time. And you and you just think, oh wow, you know, I wonder what opportunity I've now got to to explore all these things I want to explore. Of course, yeah. I mean, with that in mind, you say you've got you've got two young kids. How does that work with practicing, or is practicing a bit of a uh... practicing is a distant memory? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> practicing is regular practice is a distant memory. The practice I do now is 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 kind of the absolute bare minimum I need to do in order to not make a complete fool of myself on the next <laughs> gig I'm doing. It really yeah. is that. It really is like you know, because when when you've got kids that are, that are screaming for attention. Yeah, it suddenly doesn't seem that important that I, no. I can't play my, you know, my C sharp minor drop two voicings. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's really it's it's so difficult. I mean, it, it, I think it's difficult as a musician anyway, 
making time for yourself. Like I, I think I've in my career, I've spent a lot of time playing for other people, doing mm. you know, get learning stuff for other people's bands, and not quite making enough time for my own projects. Yeah. And then the, so the thing with kids is it's the same thing all over again, but but now you've got to make time for your kids and, and making time for your own, you know, even making time to to play other people's gigs. Of course. Is, you know, I'm now doing that on on a very small fraction of the time that I used to give it. So, I, you know, I, I kind of now have to resign myself to the fact that I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to sound that great on the next gig I'm going to. I, mm-hmm. I mean, it's been really, I feel, I feel like I'm kind of, we're coming through, coming out of the hardest period now because they're both sleeping a lot better. Yeah. So I kind of feel like I'm finally waking up after a horrible ordeal. <laughs> I mean, obviously they're great. They, you know, it's, it's great having kids. I mean, one thing that's fantastic is, is hearing them acquiring language, you know, obviously, yeah. obviously, you know, we've been talking about language. So, so you kind of really see the parallels. Right. And, and my youngest is, is at the age now where, where the language thing is just absolutely snowballing. You know, she, she learns new stuff all the time and, and it's, and it's often hilarious. She's potty training at the moment. She did poo in the potty. Very good. And, um, I said, well, okay, let's, um, let's take it, let's take that to the toilet now. And she's, yeah, okay then. And then we took it to the toilet and she said, bye poo. See you, see you soon. <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah. like, it, like it comes that's back a new sometimes. One. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So, I mean, if you did, if you did have time to practice, what kind of things would you sit down and want to be doing? I did like the, I did, I did some work. I did some preparation work on the kind of thing that we were just talking about. Kind of a, a memory palace for. Um, I did a memory palace for um, note order <laughs> permutations, like four note. The, the, the note order of four notes. So the first, the first one would be all four notes ascending, right? One, two, three, right. four, and then the last one would be four, three, two, one, and then so the second one would be one, two, four, three. Okay. So I did a memory pass for that, and then obviously this is the story of my life. I do all the work, and then I don't have an output for it. Okay. I don't have. I don't finish it to the point where it comes out in my playing. Right. And that's. I mean, that's. Yeah. This would be this would be a, a piece of advice for for any musicians. Always make sure you've got an output for the thing you're doing. That's one of the things I think is great about about there being Instagram and YouTube and stuff. Is that that's an output for you? That's that's somewhere you can you know if you if you if you if you, if you learn something cool or you create something cool, yeah, you get it out there and then it's and then it's finished. Like I'm all, I'm always really in awe of. My friend Ben Jones, you know, because he, he's into a lot of the stuff I'm into. He's into synths and stuff, and and you know, so if I if I kind of discover a cool sound on a synth, I'll just like, oh yeah, I've discovered a cool sound on a synth, and I'll I'll write some notes about it, about how I've how how it's made, and you know, maybe show my friends. When when Ben discovers the same thing, he'll produce up a track, and it, and it's out on on Instagram, you know, it's out on YouTube, yeah. it's. Or he's released it as, on an EP, and that's so. That's the thing that that I'm. I've never been great at. I kind of if all the things that I that I that I've worked on are, that, that are just under the surface all suddenly came to the surface one yeah. day. Yeah, be amazing. It, yeah, it'd be it'd be a, a great day. 
No, it's, I, I, I definitely, you know, you're, you're, you've been such, a, I will just say, you've been such a hugely inspiring pianist for me, like going oh, to see you play and especially all those classes, you know. Right. Um, yeah, you know, I, I still think about some of those things today. That's the amazing thing about teaching is that you kind of think, oh, that hour that I've just spent with someone, well, if they, they'll either take it on board or they won't now. It's not then, it's like several years down the line. Yeah. It's, you know, mm. there are stuff that you can be working on that someone told you about eight years ago and you're like, oh, yeah. that does actually now, mate. I get, you know, that's, that's <laughs> incredible. You know, yeah. at the time I just thought it was, you know, oh, I'm not going to do that. But then suddenly you think about it and you almost discover it for yourself. It's like, wasn't that what Phil, <laughs> Phil was yeah. telling me but eight then, years but, ago? Yeah, but then, but then that's what has to happen, isn't it? You, you, you have yeah. to kind of, um, you have to be in the right position. You have to, you've got to be ready to absorb the thing. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, it's got to be at the right time. Amazing. Um, yeah. There's a there's a couple more things I want to ask you about. Mm. Uh, I mean, you've mentioned it a few more, a few times, but since that's obviously mm. been a really really big part of your life, and it's quite un. Yeah. It's not like uh, I feel like some people either go hugely into synths and they like you know it's their whole world, or it's it's kind of they just don't don't do it at all. They don't they don't engage with synths at all. What's kind of like how did you get get into it and because I think you've got you've got like mm. an incredible amount of keyboards, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have got I have got quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, I've got the, certainly the early ones like um I never bought a classic synth until much much later, but I but they were always kind of a part of my upbringing. Like I got a there's a Casio VL tone, which is a tiny little white keyboard which i got when i was probably seven or eight or something um and then i got a kind of another home keyboard when i was about 13 but even that had like a you could program it had like an envelope on it you know an adsr envelope so that was kind of yeah i always had it and then i got a really good one at about 16 which is called a roland w30 which is like a sampling workstation okay which I just, I mean, that's what ruined my eyes. It had a, had a, had a kind of tiny little screen on it. And I would just, yeah. be, I'd just be on it six hours a day. Like yeah. I had a sequencer on there and it had like seven seconds of sampling time, which I would, you know, find all sorts of ways to kind of rinse right. to, to the nth degree. Yeah. Like I said, I kind of bought, bought since, you know, when I was earning enough money, I, I think I bought a Korg Trinity, which I've still got somewhere um in fact i still use that i use that on next gig actually but only as a midi controller and i got a cork triton rack so you know none of these things like uh, i went through the 90s and that's probably early noughties as well when all those like if i'd have if i'd have bought a juno at the time you know in the in the 90s it would have cost me nothing like yeah nick nick kershaw told me his his synths ended up in a skip Oh no! Yeah, it's just absolutely wow. cutting. <laughs> yeah, um, they're worth loads now, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, so I, I kind of, I got, I got better ones later on. But yeah, I learned. I kind of learned a lot. I got a, another one, another non-classic, which is a Nord Lead Three. But the okay. a really good thing about it is it's got, it's, so it's got knobs, and around the knob is like a ring of LEDs. Right. So when you flip to a new preset. It, it flicks to exactly, you know, it shows you all the parameters so you can see how the sound is made. Um, so that was really useful for me. Yeah, I guess just with each purchase, with each new synth, I got more deeply into it. 
probably the deepest I went was with I've got one called a Dave Smith Poly Evolver. Right. Um, and then, so I spent ages programming that. Again, being a little bit, a little bit too content with like spending six hours going, oh yeah, I've just, I've just programmed a really good version of, of, I don't know, the synth sound to I Can't Get You Out of My Head by Kylie Minogue. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of feeling, oh yeah, it's been a good day. It's been a really, <laughs> it's been a really productive day yeah. rather, rather than kind of saying, oh, okay, I've programmed this synth. Let's write a song. Yeah. Let's get it out there. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah. Oh, I'm sure that's still to come. Yeah. I, um, I like to think, I like to think that as well. That's what kind Absolutely. of gets me out of bed in the morning. Yeah. And then, yeah, I did that. I kind of, after I'd done a lot of work on that synth, I, I heard, kind of, I heard that um, that Dave Smith was releasing a new a new synth, Prophet Twelve. Okay. And I'd I'd kind of been in touch with that that company already. It's a small company. Um, I'd been in touch just asking about something that was going wrong with my Poly Evolver, and so I kind of I just sent them an email saying, "Heard you got this synth coming out. Do you want anybody to um, write sounds for it?" Didn't get a response. And then about a month later, they said, "Oh yes, please do. Please write some some sounds for that synth. What's your address? It's going to arrive with you in four days' time. Oh wow! You can you can have it for one week. Um, so that was that was really good fun, and you know, so I, I kind of geeked out with that for. Oh, that sounds for a like a fun project. Yeah, that yeah, it was amazing. really good fun to do, and I and um, amazingly, I managed to. There was some output to that as well. I, uh, in addition to the, you know, they, they did use some of my sounds, but I did, I did a, I did a couple of, just you know, iPhone videos, and yeah, and so they're on YouTube. Nice. Was I was just about to ask to you that actually, um, if people want to go and check you out and see some more of your stuff, or uh, mm. go and see go and see you play, what would be what would be the best? How 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 would they go and do that? What would be the best thing to see? Yeah. So there's a, there are a few things on YouTube. Um, I did a yeah that that one about voicings. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, from whenever it was last year, I got the one of the synth one. I mean, I, you know, I guess if you're into synth, then it's then it's cool. I didn't think my synth one was 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 that great, but it's actually had a lot more views than the. Oh, I thought that was great. The, so the harmony one. Anyone who doesn't know, Phil went through every single para parameter on the Juno synth right the way through, it. and it's over like two videos, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, in terms of seeing you play live, they could see you at Ronnie Scott's, maybe. Yeah, part of the playing, Soul Family. We're playing this Sunday at Ronnie Scott's. That um, might not be this Sunday when you're listening to this, but uh, yes. you said it was the third Sunday we, of every month, yeah, right? Yeah, it's the third Sunday of every month. Yeah, there's a there's um we're doing a a UK tour with Nick Kershaw in in September. Oh, okay. I think I think it's I think it's selling well, but it might not be sold out. I will then um, um, put links to all of these in the episode description as well, so yeah. people, can, people can check this out. Yeah, and uh, and I think I'm writing saying that there'll be a tour coming up next year because I think it's the 40th anniversary of his first album. Okay. So I think we're going to be um, touring and, and playing that album, which I'm really looking forward to because there's a few few songs from that album. A lot of the songs from the first album we play already, but there's a few that we've never done. So that'll be another chance for me to geek out with synth sounds. Amazing. Oh, Phil, it's been so great having you on the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having and, me. And um, yeah, I will, I will put links to all of that in the episode description so people can check it out. Thanks very much for coming on. Cheers. See you again. 
thanks so much to Phil for coming on the podcast. He's such an incredible musician and I really enjoyed sitting down with him and talking about his journey in music so far. I've added links in the description. Do go and check them out, particularly his tutorials on YouTube and do go and see him play live. Thank you so much for listening. We have lots of other awesome guests coming up for you. So do remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you.